know I spend a lot of time talking about the cloud and I think we've lost sight that that's actually still hardware that's running in a data center somewhere. And a lot of the problems are still the same. Our technology shouldn't be used for the sake of using technology. Our technology should be used to solve a business problem. And open source can be part of that, but that can't be your whole business. Our world rides on the top of open source and it requires a lot of people to chop wood and carry water. And yeah, it's not sexy, it's not fun. It's a lot like work, but it's also deeply important. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, I sit down with Abby Kearns, Executive Director of the Cloud Foundry Foundation. We start off by hearing a bit about Abby's early career and progression into enterprise software from the enterprise infrastructure ecosystem. We talk a lot about the cloud and how different perspectives on cloud computing create different expectations and use cases. Then we spend a bit of time getting Abby's perspective on the opportunities for software companies in China. Finish off the discussion with a foray into open source business models, governance, and the role of foundations. Enjoy. All right, Abby, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me, Grant. I am super excited. Great. So let's just jump right in. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into enterprise software. When I graduated from college with my BS in computer information systems, which I actually don't think is a degree anymore, but essentially it was a comp sci degree with a couple of business classes. The first job I was able to get, because I graduated in the height of the, uh, when the bubble first burst in 2000. So I took the first job I could get which was at working for Sabre. The, for those of you that travel a lot, you'll know it as the reservation system behind American Airlines and many others. And I got a job there as a project manager on the global infrastructure team and was managing infrastructure implementations, uh, large-scale infrastructure implementations. And I got hooked. And I've been an enterprise infrastructure ever since. And I moved into software about five, six years ago when this thing called the cloud started getting real traction. And I've been here ever since. And I can't think of a more exciting place to be right now in the world. Cool. So you mentioned sort of enterprise infrastructure versus enterprise software. How do you define the difference between those two? Well, nowadays, it's uh, the line's super blurry. But back in the day, Enterprise infrastructure were things like servers and racks and data centers, and the software was something you put on top of the infrastructure and was completely separate. And in enterprises, most of the actual development work for any custom software was actually done with offshore teams. And so there was a lot of, of hard paths, like you implemented the infrastructure, you ordered the servers and the network gear, and you racked and stacked them, and you put them in data centers, and you cabled them up. And then... Somebody came along and laid down the operating systems and a lot of the drivers and did the configurations on the firewalls. And then after that, you deployed uh, this, any of the custom software that you were implementing. I worked a lot in e-commerce, so we did a lot of ATG and WebSphere implementations. And so there was a real clear delineation between what was infrastructure and what was software. And now... Uh, it's been super exciting to see those lines blur over the last five, six, seven years as what's defined as software and what's defined as infrastructure are really merging. And it's exciting, but I also worry that we're losing sight of what that actually means. It's really interesting. So 
because I don't, I think about it, I, t- I tell people that replicated is, you know, infrastructure software. That's just how I think about the world, right? So I guess to your point, it's sort of that cloud abstraction, that it, the ability to abstract away the hardware that allows that to be so true. But in your mind, you're saying like, one, it's not actually how it is. There's still hardware behind there. But like uh, you think about, you know, enterprise infrastructure as the, 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 the real physical pieces that allow for the software to run, right? Well, yeah, and I think my concern along those lines is that when we talk about the cloud, we spend a lot of time, I know I spend a lot of time talking about the cloud and the magic that happens in the cloud. And I think we've lost sight that that's actually still hardware that's running in a data center somewhere. And a lot of the problems are still the same. We've you know, added abstraction layers to a lot of them. There's a ton of automation that exists now that didn't exist you know, 10, 20 years ago. But there's still hardware. And I think, yes, it's so awesome what all of this software-defined infrastructure does in terms of both networking, automation, replication, you know, what a lot of this technology is bringing to the table. But I also worry that we're losing sight of what that means and what are we automating and what's the point of that automation? I mean, for me, I still find it quite magical to be able to spin up a VM in like 30 seconds where I remember, you know, the effort it took to order that server, rack it, stack it, cable it, get it online. So I remember all of the effort it it used to take. And so I think if you haven't had to do the work, you don't appreciate what's automated, but you also don't understand the ramifications of that automation. And I think that's my worry about where we are right now. Hmm, Interesting. And so what do you think the downstream effects of that are? You know, everything from the way we think about you know, what does resiliency even mean anymore, right? Architecting your applications for resiliency, but not assuming that, you know, the cloud is going to take care of that for you. You know, prior to thinking about cloud native architectures, it was all about BCDR, business continuity disaster recovery, and the way you thought about how am I going to handle this if there is an outage in the data center? And trust me, there's always an outage in every data center, and that still continues today there's always going to be some kind of failure. And so how do you architect your applications for resiliency in the face of failure? And, you know, how do you think about scale? And I think one of the great forcing functions when you're having to order hardware and install it and configure it, that was a really great forcing function to think about what you're doing because you had time. You had to, you had to wait. You had to think ahead of time about scale and how much capacity you were going to need at a web layer, at an application layer, at a database layer. You had to really think through all of that and plan it out because that was months lead time getting up to that. And one of the things that you don't have to think about now is that because you can automatically spin up VMs and containers and you can set up this auto resiliency, but you're not putting a lot of thought into what you're doing and why. When you don't have to think about it, you run the risk of not properly thinking about resiliency for your applications not thinking about the capacity that you need, just assuming it will be there and not also not thinking about what you need to shut down or reallocate so you have that sprawl that exists too. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, the level of thinking that that is required in order to build for systems when you were you know doing it on physical boxes pretty intense, right? Yeah, and you had to think it through. I mean, you weren't just going to have a DL380 tomorrow, and so you had to put some thought into it. But I guess, you know, one of the challenges is that everyone sort of, because they were thinking it through themselves, invented a different way to do it every time, right? So you just didn't have, like, the well-defined patterns and primitives that I think we, we have today that allow us to sort of, you know, get there faster. And I think if you parallel it to security, right? So when people were doing their own, you know, writing their own crypto algorithms in order to encrypt something, it's like, well, that's it's not really the best, the best way. And so maybe these new patterns and primitives can provide a faster path to better systems. I agree. I think there's, we've gone so far and we've done, you're able to do so much and it, and it is of better quality because you can do that. You can replicate patterns, you can leverage a greater breadth of standardization around it. I just, what I hear a lot are people not fully thinking through what they're doing. And that's my concern. You know, why do you have this? Where are you scaled out to? What clouds are you running on and why? 
you know, your own data centers? Why, why do you have this deployment and, and what the intent of it is? And I think when anyone ever asks my opinion around the way they should think about um, what new technologies to adopt or how to build out cloud native architectures, I'm, I always come back to, okay, what are you solving for? What do you hope to gain? What is the outcome you want? And back into that as opposed to we're going to we're going to deploy some stuff on the cloud and hope for the best. Oh, you don't just go to whatever's trending on Twitter? Well, I mean, that is that is a way. I don't know that it's going to result in the best outcomes for you, but, you know, you'll certainly score one for buzzword bingo. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's interesting. So, you know, you think about the, you know, the outcomes. Like, dive into that. Like, what are some different paths, right? So, if, it's, if the answer is it's the, it depends, like, what are some of the details that it depends on? Well, I think... Anyone that ever says, I want to move to the cloud because I want to move to the cloud, you're like, okay, that's not, that's not a reason to move to the cloud. <laughs> the cloud. The cloud is not some magical place that's going to solve all your problems. In fact, depending on your types of applications, the types of workloads, and what you're hoping to do, it could be you know, a disaster for you. So I think you know, if I'm, my goal is to you know, have better control of my applications, be able to iterate more, be able to write more new cloud applications as I'm trying to, you know, digitize my business. That's great. Let's talk about that. You know, let's figure out what does that mean? When you say velocity, what does that mean? You know, how is your team structured around that? What types of applications are you using and developing? And what is the back end on that? What are your systems of record? Where are those located? You know, all of these things should still be part of the consideration. I'm not saying that you shouldn't move to the cloud. I'm, I'm just saying that it may not be the right approach for everything that you do. And so, you know, I think what may be helpful right now is even just a little more detail around, you know, after you were doing infrastructure, what you got into software and how you were doing that and sort of what your role is today. I mean, that'd be, that'd be great context. So today I run Cloud Foundry Foundation, an open source software foundation that sits at the heart of a lot of what these different movements are, which is the open source cloud native architecture movement, the enterprise digital transformation movement, as well as the technology provider and hyperscale cloud provider thrust to be part of this space. And so it's, it's a really interesting apex of a lot of different trends that are both hitting all at the same time, but also feeding each other it's a really interesting moment in time. And so I've been part of the Cloud Foundry community for over five years. I was at Pivotal prior to joining the foundation. So I've been on this journey with Cloud Foundry since the early days. And it's been a really exciting opportunity to watch the role platform as a service can play in the enterprise and the whole purpose of it, which isn't just because it provides a highly automated abstraction layer on the underlying infrastructure, but also because it, it really offers a great forcing function for organizations that are looking to push more agile teams. And so that's been a really exciting evolution. I think it's also taught me a lot about patience that I, I don't possess as a common trait of mine. I'm not very patient. I'm aspirationally patient, but I think you're more patient than I am, Grant. I am I'm very impatient. And so being an open source and being working with enterprises tends to be a really good forcing function to slow down and think about things. And, and so that's, as I think about where all of the technology is unfolding, I've really brought that back to how do I take a moment and think about where we're going and why, and then what role does technology solve in that? Yeah. And, and so I think throughout your experience, right, like at, at both Pivotal and then Cloud Foundry, you've worked a lot with some of the biggest companies in the world, you know, as they make that transition to cloud, as they make that transition, you know, to you know, more agile development. I mean, really, like, you know, I always thought the idea of digital transformation was like somewhat kind of a like a bullshit like marketing term. A lot of but, people do. Yeah, but 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 I, but I now sort of acknowledge that like, look, it's just like every company has to become a software company in some capacity, right? It's the only way that like you're going to be able to compete and run as fast as, you know, the, the next generation of companies that are going to be software enabled. And so it actually started to make sense to me at some point. And, and that's what it means to me. Is that the, sort of the same thing that it means to you? Sort of. I don't, I'm a little more humble in that I do think that not every company wants to be a software company. 
I, I tend to modify that a little bit to say that every company wants to digitize their business with technology. And I qualify it that way. I used to say it the other way, but I feel like that shouldn't be everyone's goal. I think everyone should try to use technology to solve their business problem, not necessarily become their business. And, and I do think there's a slight nuance there, but it's also important as we think about the role our technologies that we create um, as technologists play. Like our technology shouldn't be used for the sake of using technology. Our technology should be used to solve a business problem. Either that is making your business more efficient through automation, through supply chain management, logistics automations, to changing the way you engage with your customers through either mobile apps or web apps or you know highly automated experience in terms of notifications. But you know it should be there in the background serving an outcome for your business. It shouldn't be your business. Now, I'm being a little pedantic about it because obviously the things I just listed are done through technology and they're done primarily through software. But I also want to make sure that we as technologists recognize that our technology is here to be part of a larger solution to solve an outcome, that you're not investing in this technology for the sole purpose of that singular technology. Yeah, I mean, I, I get your point, which is, and I think I totally agree, technology for technology's sake is, is not it, right? Like Even at a software company, when you're building software and that is the thing you're selling, you're still selling the value and the like the product that solves a problem for a customer. It's like the technical implementation and like the you know how beautiful the code is is not, it's not that's not the product, right? The product is how does someone use it? How does it provide value to them? How does it make their you know their life easier or whatever else? Yeah, and to be in particular about it because I do find that a lot of us, particularly in the cloud native ecosystem, spend so much time talking about this one piece attack that's going to be everything. It's going to solve everything. It's going to automate your life. It's going to make your toast. It's going to turn, it's going to do everything for you. And I get the, the point of the hype and I get the conversation around it, but I also am like to caution to say, Hey, you know what? Sure. But this is a piece of a larger puzzle. Everything that we're all working on is a piece of a larger puzzle that's solving a bigger problem. So as we tell that story and we think about it, how do we describe it in a way that says, hey, we're working on this larger solution. It can automate so many things. It can pull so many different technologies together. But at the end of the day, it's going to be part of a larger puzzle as you, the customer, works on using this to improve your business. I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a second, Greg. Perfect. I love it. But like, I feel like we sit around and talk about to use your earlier phrase that, you know, what's trending on Twitter and it's like, oh my God, it does everything. And I also find that we start using the same words to describe a lot of different technologies, particularly in the cloud native space. Like I'll look at some websites and I'll have to read it three or four times. And I'll, I'll honestly, I'll, I'll ask a founder. I'm like, I, I read your website and I have no idea what you do. Like you use all the same words that everybody else does. It's cloud native, it's for enterprise, it's software defined. Sure, but what does that actually mean with it? What are you actually doing? <laughs> and, and, I, and I'm deeply empathetic for enterprises and, and even CIOs and CTOs that are like, I don't even know what this means. So, I mean, that, that's an interesting point because I think it's often hard for software vendors to talk about their products beyond just the features, right? Like, and beyond the, the sort of marketing terms that drive interest, it's like, well, What's the value it provides? How do you think about discovering the right way to describe the value of, of your software if you're if you're selling if you're selling software? And by the way, I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else. So I'm not going to say that I'm above this, um, but I do think it would be great if we could all sit down. And maybe this is because I'm in open source, and so my open sourceness is coming out. Um, which, by the way, is that a description? Open sourceness, but definitely <laughs> community-driven approach to solving problems. It'd be like, hey, maybe we all sit down in a room, you know, like a good like 60, 70 of us, and just like, hey, let's have a conversation about how we should talk about this, and how do all these different things slot into that, and how do we tell the story in a way that doesn't really come back to the same two or three one-liners? And I think, I think that could be fun, if not. 
else. It would be a really great, like, you know, offsite. But <laughs> I do think it would be interesting because I struggle to explain it sometimes to to people that are new to technology and are asking me, okay, what does all of this mean? How does all of this fit together? Like if I'm trying to build out a new application portfolio or a technology portfolio for my business, what which ones do I choose and why do I choose all of them, some of them, half of them? And, and I do worry that there's so many different choices and so many different things that are top of mind and top of conversation. Like how do you tell someone what to choose and why and when. And, you know, I'm sure you struggle with it as you think about how your technology slots in with other things as well. Yeah. I mean, the challenges are, it's an ever-changing landscape, right? So things are evolving, particularly in the cloud native ecosystem, just so fast. And to position, you know, what you're doing in a way that makes sense, you know, to your target audience, who sometimes are early adopters, right? And so like, you know, I think particularly for some of these ecosystems, where you don't really need the person who, who doesn't really understand the, the buzzwords you're using to understand it because you only need early adopters at the beginning because they're the folks who are going to suffer through the pain and they're going to, to you know, give you the feedback and be the, the first folks to, to use your thing because they want it because it's new and because it's, you know, it has promise. But then you know, eventually I think that these technologies need to sort of settle down into more you know, like more, more value-based things, right? So how do you describe this in a way that, you know, anyone from any large company can understand it, people can talk through it, and even like the procurement people know why you're, they're paying so much for this. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, how do you even explain it to someone in procurement that's used to buying off-the-shelf software and trying to figure out how to relate this to ROI and, and standards that they have in place today? I think it's hard. I, you know, I come back to it's pieces of a puzzle and figuring out what you want the puzzle to look like. But I also really understand how complicated it is right now. Like, do you choose the latest technology that's open source or do you choose a fully, wholly integrated solution that, you know, may not incorporate everything that you want, but at least gives you, you know, a single channel in to take an advantage of some of these technologies as they come up? I think it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to weigh. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, I think there's a there's a lot of words, and this is like one of the goals for Enterprise Ready is to help create a common vernacular, so that way when we're talking about things, people aren't talking past each other, but they're using words with the same meaning. Because I think oftentimes, you know, we use words and we have a specific connotation around what it means to us, but somebody else hears it and it means something completely different to them, right? And so, you know, I, I think it's really important, particularly with folks from kind of different worlds, if it's, you know, cutting edge startup and technology vendor meets enterprise or just people of different, you know, uh, adopter curves to, to spend some of the time up front establishing that vernacular saying, hey, we're going to define a few terms because we think it's important for us to like know what we're talking about when I say, I mean, even cloud is a, is a term that I feel like, you know, people have different definitions of and you know, when you say it, some people, you know, think one thing versus another. Yeah. I mean, some people think cloud is this magical data center in the sky that that's wholly different from a data center that you're familiar with. And it's, it's, it's a data center. It's got a really fantastic API on top of it, a great SaaS offering around it. But at the end of the day, it's still a, it's somebody's data center. Yeah. I, it's funny because I, my definition of, of cloud is closer to like infrastructure as a service, right? I think that's how I think about cloud. And, you know, I think the hyper clouds are sort of, it's a term I've heard more and more recently. I don't know why, but you know, that's the, that's the kind of big three cloud providers. And then I think that there's, there's software as a service, which I, I put separate, you know, and I think about, you know, the services that are offered probably on top of some other cloud that are offered as software that you can access and leverage making it even more confusing, right? Some of the cloud vendors, the infrastructure vendors, they almost all have additional software as a service offerings on top of their own cloud, right? So it, it sort of embeds in itself. But that's kind of how I try to define it. You know, I'm not sure if that meets your definitions. And I mean, we didn't even get into the idea of a private cloud, which you're very familiar with. Well, I mean, I think, and I think that also the challenges is the terms are changing. Like when I think about hybrid cloud, I thought about, you know, the way I used to define it, hybrid cloud is 
you have a private cloud and you're bursting into a public cloud somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas now hybrid cloud has almost the same meaning as multi-cloud, which is you're running a variety of applications on a variety of clouds. And I think that's also problematic is that what the terms that we use for things are, are evolving. Uh, I mean, for me, I think about the cloud as somebody else's data center that has a really nice API on top of it, ton of automation, but they're managing it for you. And you have access to it through those APIs. And um, that's just the way that I think about it because I came at it from my career through an infrastructure standpoint. So I always come back to where are the servers? What is this? Where Where is the hardware that this sits on? And, and, that's, and I think about it hardware up as opposed to software down. Mm. And I just think that also plays into the way that I really take a step back and think about all of the things we're building and where they slot into the arc uh, of the movement that's happening is we're rewriting a lot of the technology that, that really got us to where we are today. And I think, I mean, I'm a big believer in multi-cloud. I think multi-cloud is here to stay. I, I don't think all of the workloads are moving to public cloud. I think there's a, still a strong play for on-prem application workloads. And I think there will be for a very long time. And so I think there represents a tremendous opportunity as we think about what does that mean? How do you manage application workloads across a variety of data centers that may or may not be close located to each other? So when you have the speed of light problem and you have a data problem at that point and a networking problem at that point and a observability problem at that point. And so I still think there's a lot of problems left to solve as we think about what the future looks like at scale. But I, I, I always come back to where is the hardware sit and what does that actually mean for the applications that run on top of it? Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, you know, kind of come back to this point of, you know, seeing the world sort of based on, you know, either infrastructure first or software first or, you know, infrastructure up versus software down. And I think you're right that that perspective definitely changes how you think about the ecosystem, how you think about the applications and, you know, all the different components that, that sort of make that up. Because you know, to your point, you're sort of thinking through, well, what are the physical limitations? You know, you talk about speed of light. So like, what are the, like, that's going to be a very hard problem for us to solve, right? Like it's <laughs> sort of is going to be a constraint that we have to work with. And, you know, it's, and it's a constant. So we know that it will always be there. But when you're thinking about it from the application down, it's just not something that you think about at all, right? Well, no, because you, you think about, well, I'll just always be able to deploy on somebody's infrastructure somewhere. Right. <laughs> and, and maybe it speaks more to my lack of trust. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a whole separate podcast on trust issues that I have. But I think, you know, thinking at it from the infrastructure layer means, okay, well, it's, let's, that has to be part of the consideration as I think about where my workloads go and why. And what does that mean for the rest of my architecture that I, I think through that? If latency is a problem for me, you know, and, and that's something I think we'll speak a lot more about over the next couple of years as AI and ML workloads become more prevalent. If latency is a problem for me, well, I have to have my applications near my data. Now, what does that mean? That means that I may be limited to where I can deploy my applications. And then you layer on the complexities of data sovereignty and things like GDPR. And all of a sudden you have a very complex landscape as you think about where your workloads can go based on where the data is, based on the requirements you have around that data. And I'm not even factoring in, obviously at this point, really talking about security and compliance, which is a whole different layer on top of that. Yeah, and, and I, you know, from the way you're describing it, I, th- I think it feels like you're talking about it from the enterprise perspective around primarily leveraging first-party software that they write and create internally. But then there's the whole other aspect, right, of third-party application vendors who are trying to deliver, you know, applications and services, you know, to those organizations. And how should they think about how the, you know, the, the downstream effects of these different, you know, regulations and compliance pieces impact how they need to deliver that, that software, that service? Yes, it's true on both. Like, even if you're just offering the SaaS, it's something you have to think about. And if your customer, an enterprise customer, wants to consume your product on-prem because they have on-prem requirements, either from a security compliance standpoint or a pure latency standpoint, how do you service that? How do you deliver that? How do you measure against that as well? And I think 
I think those are our requirements on either end of that spectrum, but are very much, you know, an important part of the conversation. Right. Well, luckily that problem solved with replicated, so we don't have to go into that too deep, too detail. <laughs> Cool. So what, one of the things that I love uh, about you is you, you have some really interesting experience uh, in China, right? And I think there's this big opportunity that not many people really understand. You know, you look at some of the biggest companies in the world right now, and they are, you know, some Chinese uh, technology companies. But like, I'd love your perspective on, on how, you know, software folks and vendors should think about China, the opportunities there. And yeah, just yeah, anything, any advice you have on, on that side. Oh my God, I love China. Over the last 18 months, I've been there six times. In fact, I was just in China last week. You mentioned top three cloud providers. When I think about hyperscale cloud providers, I tend to think of top four. I include Alibaba in that, that list. That makes sense. I know Alibaba isn't as prominent here in North America, but outside of North America, it's, it is very big. Um, Alibaba and Huawei are very big in terms of public cloud providers outside of North America and thinking about not just China, uh, Europe, Southeast Asia, Latin America. Right. So I, I think we lose sight of that within the confines of the United States, but there is a whole wide world out there of companies, technology companies that are building and growing and running at a amazing scale that I don't know that we often fully appreciate here in the United States. And so I get, I get really excited about China because it's such an interesting market that is so different from any other market. It's moving so quickly and at a different scale that it's really hard for us to wrap our head around here in the United States. The scale that companies operate in China, that startups operate in China and how fast they, you know, when they launch the reach and the impact that they have. And I think that there's a, ton of innovation and iteration that's happening in China that I, I don't often think we we get enough credit for. Particularly in AI, the work they're doing at AI is just so phenomenal in China. And the opportunities that exist because of their massive data sets is, is the ability to really work on and develop against AI at a much faster pace. So mm -hmm. I think from just from an interesting market standpoint, China is super fascinating. But I think selling and delivering in China as a technology company, there's a ton of opportunity. It's also really complicated right now with the trade wars and the scrutiny that's happening on you know services delivered to China and from China. And I think that makes, particularly if you're a startup or a small company, that's obviously super complicated. And, and really hard to figure out how to navigate. But if you're up for the challenge, you know, there's just such an interesting market there. Yeah, I mean, do you have any examples of, of companies in the US, you know, like that are technology companies that have been pretty successful with delivering enterprise software or some other type of software into China? Um, well, you have to structure it in such a way, but Elastic is very popular in China. Oh, interesting. Just to, to name one off the top of my head. You know, there's a lot of technologies, particularly open source uh, is, is becoming very popular in China. And there's also a lot of homegrown uh, technologies that are also being incubated and developed there. It's just it's at a different scale in the way they think about development and iteration is, is so different. Like we like to say that we iterate quickly here in Silicon Valley and fell fast, but comparatively, we're pretty conservative. You know, in China, they will iterate quickly and they will fail fast and they will be, okay, let's learn from that and move on. And I think it just happens at such a faster pace sometimes that I'm, I'm always really impressed about how quickly things can move. So I'm guessing Elastic was successful there based on some open source adoption and then started to enter the market? Yes, that's my understanding. Obviously, um, I, I don't work there and can't really speak to, to their sales motions in China, but I, I do know that they've been... You know, I hear them talked about quite a bit when I'm in China. Interesting. It feels like a, I mean, it's a whole other world. There's different go-to-market, different technology adoption. In previous roles, when I was, you know, working for, for a SaaS company, you know, I helped open up Japan as a new market, right? And, you know, it was, it was a unique experience to, you know, we got a local partner and we kind of went to market that way and worked 
that company always worked with the largest banks first in the country that it went to. So it got the banks as customers and the telcos, but it was, it was still a very, you know, it was a big investment in order. And that's a publicly traded SaaS company to open up a market in China or in, in Japan. And then I think China feels like an, a, a step beyond that, right. In terms of accessibility and, uh, an opportunity. And then to your point, you know, the level of complication around, you know, not just IP, but also around like these new, you know, kind of modern contexts around trade wars and things and, you know, really complicated. So, I mean, do you have any advice for where someone should go to even think more about this or learn more about like how to, how to do that? Step one, I would say go to China. Like it's one of those things that's hard to explain to someone unless you go and spend time there and go to the meetings and you listen to what people talk about. You can't really say it's like America, but a little different because it's so wholly different. You know, just spending time there really helped me understand exactly where companies were in the adoption cycle, but also their understanding of tech and the role that tech played in, in a lot of solutions that were being developed. And by the way, this is changing quickly. Like, no joke, in the last year and a half, like from when I went January 2018 to last week, is so different. Like it moves so quickly. It really does change and change fast. If you're considering going to China, you you definitely need to partner with someone. As an American, you cannot create a company there. And there's a lot of limitations around assets that you can own, including digital assets. That has to be ran through local companies and local and um, and Chinese nationals. So that's something you need to think about. Who are you going to partner with? What does that partnership look like? How do you want to structure that partnership? What does your go-to-market look like? Because it's going to be very different in China. Uh, what are the channels you use? For example, you can have a, a digital presence in China through a website, but if you're going to do any marketing, a lot of that marketing push is going to happen through channels like WeChat. Oh, interesting. The predominant conversations that happen, happen on WeChat. That's how you meet people. That's how you exchange cards. That's how you communicate. But that's also how you, you know, start and initiate conversations and do marketing. So it's just a very different model than. So, so would would you do a cold outbound via WeChat to someone who's, you know, a prospect at a big Chinese company? Would that be like an appropriate way to to try to introduce your company and your service to someone? Like, like we would do cold email here in the U.S. I mean, I guess you could. I don't know how successful that would be. I mean, that might work. I think more likely you would join and participate in a WeChat channel. So they have channels where you can have groups and conversation, group conversations, right? So mm. you might join one of those and start one of those conversations. So similar to Slack communities, basically. Yeah, it's a lot like Slack, but more like Facebook Messenger. It's like a combination of a lot of different things. It's not identical to Slack. Because like, for example, they don't hand out business cards in China. They have them, but more often than not, you you scan your WeChat on the way out of the meeting. Hmm. You know, I, I use WeChat 100% when I'm there. That's how you don't email people, you WeChat. Interesting. I mean, I, this is it's like a, such a crazy topic because I feel so uninformed. Like I have zero context, right? I've been to China once and I guess twice. And you know, it was an incredible experience as a, as a tourist, but like I didn't really do any business there. So this feels like such a crazy foreign topic, but definitely something that, you know, I, you know I've talked to you in the past and you've always been so excited about the opportunity there and sort of the adoption of open source. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always eager to hear, to hear how you feel about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, I think China is super interesting. I think it's complicated and I think it's wildly different. I am always encouraging people to check your hubris at the door a little bit and go in with an open mind and listen and just, you know, get a gauge for how things work because it is very different. And, you know, if you go and expect the same level of discourse and same motions that you have here in the U S or even in Europe, it's going to be very different. And it's just, it's a very different operating model. But if you can partner with someone local, like I have a, a team, that I partner with that's local to China and have really done a great job of educating me on how things work and why they work that way and how to have really interesting conversations 
and what that means within the con- the broader context of the company you're talking to. And that's for the Cloud Foundry Foundation? Yeah. Is that because there's a pretty broad adoption of Cloud Foundry within the companies over there? And so you're trying to you know figure out how to get more companies involved? Or what, what are you doing in China today? Uh, membership, obviously, getting new members. But also, we have some really great members there. Huawei and Alibaba are both gold members. And so I spend a lot of time with both of them. You know, digital transformation is just hitting the enterprise in China now. Mm. So you're starting to see that uptick in conversations around platforms like Cloud Foundry, but also the digital transformation converse conversation is really starting to take off just now. You know, Huawei and Alibaba are trying to figure out what their cloud solutions are. And, you know, they're looking to what has been done in North America, because obviously, you know, we started the digital transformation conversation in North America, you know, four or five years ago, Europe followed a couple of years after that. And, and then really now China is starting to really go into that conversation in greater depth. And so, you know, speaking to people that are users, but also providers and figuring out the role Cloud Foundry can play in that market. It's interesting. It made me sort of think about the role of a software foundation like the Cloud Foundry Foundation. And sort of, you know, taking a step back, I'm just going to take a, a little bit of a guess at one of the objectives when you think about like why a foundation is created. Obviously, there's like value around governance, but I just sort of realized one of the other maybe primary reasons is is really to provide, you call it thought leadership, call it like sort of category creation, call it education around a specific topic that sort of is going to drive the future of some, some type of technological change. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, because a lot of the things that are important to us in North America are, are particularly on the technology side, are becoming important in China. Cloud-native architectures are becoming deeply important. A lot of companies that provide cloud services just in China are trying to figure out, okay, how do I scale that? And what does that look like beyond China? And, and if you're an enterprise, I'm really trying to digitize my business. If I am a bank in China, I'm also trying to become more agile because, yeah, you have the, the fintech startups in, in North America and Europe, but in China, it's growing like crazy. You know, WeBank is, you know, a digitally only bank and is trying to change the paradigm in the way you think about infrastructure. And so you have the same challenges in China. It's just happening at a very different scale. Right. But, but just in general, right, like the idea of like a foundation, even, you know, the Cloud Foundry Foundation, part of your founding purpose is to help disseminate and share like a perspective and like educate and help bring a new way of thinking into the market. Do you agree with that? Like as a as a reason this would be around? <laughs> well, I think our reason to be around is to hold and uh, encourage a sustainable ecosystem and community around the technology. Yeah. But I also spend you know, a third of my time educating people on the space and what does it mean and how, do, how does this all translate, how does this technology translate into the outcomes you're trying to, to go after? And digital transformation is a big topic that I speak a lot about because that's mainly what Cloud Foundry is used for and you can't really use the technology if you don't understand what it's solving for. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's, it's so true. I mean, obviously, like, you know, the first part is to be the, the governance and to make sure this is a, a project that lives beyond the company and there's collaboration. But like, you know, to your point, like, it's about value and the value of this technology is, I think, I, I see the conversations that you lead as, you know, as really that it's not about cloud foundry as a technology, but it's more about digital transformation, which I think is to your point, you're talking about value. Yeah, so it's a bad habit I'm trying to break, Grant. <laughs> I can't help it. I'm like, well, they're like, why do I need a PaaS? Well, you need a PaaS because you're trying to develop more applications at scale faster. And so it's back into that with what are you solving for? And then like, oh, and yeah. this is why you need this. Yeah, it's like, I mean, the why is, you know, super important. Before you get into the, the what and the how, you, you sort of have to buy into the why. And that's, you know, I've been telling the Cloud Foundry story now for over five years, and I, I feel like I've, I've kind of perfected that. I feel like five years ago, I started with, let me explain to you how PaaS works. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you know what a container is? Let's talk about that. And then let's work from there. And now I'm like, what are you solving for? Okay, now we'll back into that. And here's how technology enables that. 
But let's not start with what the technology is because that isn't answering your question. Yeah. I mean, the other part that kind of leads me you know, into is just about open source, right? And sort of, you know, a lot of folks that are building, you know, open core, open source companies that are trying to think about the right way to to manage that, right? And so do they donate it to a foundation? Do they build their own foundation around it? Do they just manage it, you know, like themselves? And I'm, you know, I'm guessing you have a perspective on this and sort of the advantages and disadvantages to, to those different approaches. Is that something you're you think about? Oh my God, I have so many opinions on that. Perfect. <laughs> I have oh, I have opinions. First and foremost, this is my soapbox that I carry around. Is there's no such thing as an open source business model, period. So like if you think you're going to develop a technology, open source it, and that's gonna be your path to riches, you're going to be very sad. So let's start with that. I'm crying right now. Are you? I'm no, sorry. No. Uh, <laughs> if I'm crushing dreams, I'm really sorry, but I feel like someone needs to be honest. I mean, there's pros and cons. Like, what's the point of a foundation? And I do feel like there's a lot of unknowns about what does a foundation actually do? Why do we need so many of them? There seems to be so many. The purpose of a foundation is quite simple. So a foundation is a, in the United States, our tax entity status is we are a 501c6. So we are a nonprofit, but we are not a philanthropy. So you cannot donate money to to me at Cloud Foundry Foundation and hope for a tax write-off. And we're not here to help you do good in the world. You can do good on top of us, but just you know, really recognizing that we're not a philanthropy. But the importance of the 501c6 status is that what that means is we hold, as a foundation, we hold the IP, the trademark, the assets affiliated with Cloud Foundry. And I'll use Cloud Foundry as, as part of this description. So we hold the assets. And those assets, once transferred into our legal entity, can never be transferred to a for-profit company. And that's super important because that means no one can take their ball and go home. So moving into a foundation is a great way to create a neutral territory and really enable trust. Because at the end of the day, what do you need if you want a successful open source project where you would like other people to contribute, to have a community and to build an ecosystem? Well, you need trust first and foremost. And so a foundation helps create that trust because it is a neutral place where everyone can gather around and no one has the upper hand. Now, I realize there's a lot of ways you can gain the other upper hand and I won't go into those right now, but at the end of the day, that's the whole point of a foundation is it creates that neutral place. And the foundation's duty beyond holding the IP and the trademark is to really foster a sustainable ecosystem around that technology that extends the value and really en- en- enables the growth and the successful evolution of that technology and to encourage and support the members that contribute to that. And so a lot of that has to do with really telling a story and keeping people excited because open source is super awesome and people love it and they get real excited about a project for the first year. But after that, it gets super boring because to quote what other people have said much better than me, you're chopping wood and carrying water and that's kind of boring. Nobody wants to be here for the boring stuff. They want to be here for the the sexy, cool, fun edge cases. And so keeping people excited and keeping that contribution going to the core parts of the technology are are what I spend a lot of time doing. And that's done largely through marketing and awareness. And to go into why would you open source anything? Open source is great because you can get other people to help you collaborate on the development of a technology. So collaborative R&D. It's a great way to get other people pulled in and to really accelerate the development of that technology. It's also a great way to quickly build a community around that technology, as well as accelerates the ecosystem that you're building around that. What extends the value of your technology? And so open sourcing technology is a fantastic way to do all of those things while also helping if you're doing grassroots development or hoping to do a grassroots outreach to developers, it is a fantastic way to do all of those things. But 
if you're open sourcing, you also have to realize that you're now allowing other people to have control over your code. So when you open source something, you have to think, am I okay with someone else dictating how this software unfolds over time? Am I okay with other opinions dictating the roadmap and the direction? Am I okay if someone else takes part of that and uses it for something else or forks it and does something else with it entirely or uses it to, if I'm a for-profit company, uses it to compete against me? Am I okay with that? And what does that look like for me? And also there is work involved in developing and fostering a, a successful community. There's work involved in fostering a successful ecosystem. And those are things that take time and, and effort. They, they don't happen on their own. It's interesting because, you know, I sort of see open source still, I mean, a bit differently. I mean, primarily because like, we don't have any you know, massive open source projects or foundations, but we open source little components here and there and other pieces that we do. And you know, part of the reason we open source stuff is one, we think it's a great way to create transparency and sort of this uh, visibility into what's actually happening. So you know, if you're trying to do something and prove it secure, like having the open source allows people to kind of vet and do their own audits and, and pieces of it, right? The other part that, I, that we see is just marketing value, right? Somebody can use your tool, they you know, get some value out of it, maybe they find your primary service, maybe they want to work with you, that kind of being another key driver. Partially because like, I think it is quite difficult to build an open source project that actually gets a community and gets contributions. Like, those are pretty high bars if you think about open source. They are. I have a question for you. Okay. How many of those users that you have that use your open source tools convert to paying customers? We don't really know. It's hard. To, you don't really know who's using your software when it's open source, right? They can phone it and they can just copy the code. You can get it however they want. They can start using it. So the only way that we know is when folks come to us and say, oh, yeah, we found that open source project we created or, hey, we... We really love that thing you built and we've been using it. So that that's kind of the only, you, you kind of you never, it's hard to really get to a true conversion rate, right? Exactly. I was just curious if you had like a percentage of how you thought it, but yeah, I think that's the great way to think about it as a channel. It is a fantastic channel. I think it provides a lot of value, but I started off with the open sources and a business model because I think my perspective is you should have a business model and a business and open source can be part of that, but that can't be your whole business. And I think, and, and I was curious how you had it set up at Replicated, because I'm sure you have a business and a business model where open source is part of it, but it isn't the whole business. Yeah, yeah of course. You know, we have additional, you know, components that are proprietary. We have like a hosted service that's actually not the, it's not a hosted version of the open source stuff. It's just complementary to the open source components. So and that's how we leverage open source. I mean, even the enterprise ready.io uh, website is totally open source, right? So we wrote this content where like, well, we should just like make this a collaborative thing that if somebody wants to add some content into this guide to building better enterprise software, like they should be able to make a pull request. And so, you know, that has gotten some contributions. I think content's a great way to like leverage open source, even though it's not code, it's still something that as a community, we can all kind of edit. It's more like a wiki kind of thing than it is a, uh, than it is a true you know, open source project. That's awesome. But I think that's that's the way you should think about it. I mean, I think that's the way you should think about open source too, is there's a lot of structure and, and framework and process uh, about around larger projects, but think of them like a wiki is you're contributing to the whole and you're, you're participating in larger conversations and larger evolution. And I think that's, you know, that's a really important way to think about it, Grant. Hmm. You know, there's a ton of opportunity in open source and I, and I know I sound a bit like a naysayer, but I think people should think of open source in the way that it is and understanding the pragmatic aspects of it. There's a ton of value that can be garnered from it, but you really have to understand what it can bring and what it can do for you. Yeah. Like the other part of it is, I think we sort of all recognize that like we're at companies, we're not necessarily going to be there like our entire lives. And it's nice to be able to build pieces that we can then use ourselves in the future. And so you're kind of doing this as advantage to your future self 
because you want to continue to leverage that thing that you built. And you also know that like, if this piece that you built that somebody like you open source it, your company that you built that for is going to be much better served if it's continuously leveraged by lots of different companies and sort of managed and improved rather than like, you know, it becomes a piece of legacy code that never gets changed again, you know, and it sits in a, a, a repo that like no one looks at. Right. So there's massive advantages for both employees and for, uh, for the organizations. Exactly. I think that's actually a great way. I didn't really, I never think about it that way, but that's also a great way is, is code you can have access to once you move to a different company. That's, that's a really great way of thinking about it. Yeah. I, I kind of pull that from the, the Android founders that they, they there's some podcast I listened to and they were maybe some just the early employees there. They were just so excited. They're like, this is the last time I have to write, you know, this specific mobile phone interface because like now it's all open source. And, you know, they had net, they had like done this like three times before and they were like, wow, this is going to be great. We get to reuse this in the future. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. I didn't really thought of it that way, but that's, that's, that's a really good frame as well. One thing I'd also want to add is, a conversation. I'm, I'm, I've taken this from someone else, but the tragedy of commons of open source and how one of the, the downsides of open source, and this is true of anything, when something is everyone's responsibility, then no one is responsible. And that's one of the downsides of open source is if everyone is responsible for making it healthy and secure and evolving the innovation around it, then no one feels accountable and not, and you, you know, you have to really keep people engaged and excited about something. And that's, that's the challenge around open source. Yeah. It's interesting. And this is, I'm going to say something that's going to be like, like heretical. The opportunity with the tragedy of the commons is like, well, if like everybody uses something and then the responsibility of using that falls on everybody else, well, like somebody should go in there and commercialize that thing. Right and build a company around it and like put 10 engineers who are all full time on, on maintaining and enhancing that core piece and then build a company around it. And then it becomes valuable to the, to the ecosystem. And if more people want to contribute, they can all sort of like add in their own engineers and continue to contribute. So, you know, I think that the only, you know, cause you think about like, there's a lot of these components that nobody is really, you know, paying these, these, people to, to manage and to one person show to, to manage and maintain something. But if people get in there and help and then commercialize it, you know, people will probably get pissed, number one. But number two, it'll be maintained and you're, you're probably going to end up with a much better piece of software long term. Well, I think, I mean, that's how open source is. It's governance by contribution. And exactly. Yeah. That's a short way of saying, Hey, if you're really passionate about something and you're going to put the people on it, then you can make that happen. And that's the positives of open source is because you can really direct where it goes. But the negatives are if you really want this thing and no one wants to work on it, but you, and you don't want to work on it, then it's not going to happen. Right. Exactly. Right. But I mean, there's just so many, there's probably a really amazing business opportunity out there to go look at like all these components, you know, of open source, whatever they might be. And be like, well, this is a core piece of infrastructure for so many folks. Let's like become the core contributors to it and help out and advance what we want to get done with it. And then let's let's commercialize it, right? Let's build a company around it. And you know, I, I'd say there's just for a lack of imagination, maybe a lack of awareness around like how to do open source go to market that hasn't happened yet. So you know, maybe that's a that's a way we can help solve that that tragedy of the commons is people can can see the commercial interest and, you know, and go serve it as, you know, for in the name of capitalism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I try that a lot, Grant, because trust me, I come at open source from a very commercial outcome. I'm very commercial driven. So I understand the value it brings to the open source. That doesn't always work though. You would think that would work more often than it does. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a ton of opportunity that exists around open source. And I think open source is really I do think it's fundamentally defining what the future of the cloud is going to look like. And it's, it's, it's a core part of that. But I also don't know, and this kind of, this circles back to our earlier conversation is I don't know that enough people understand and appreciate what that means and take it for granted. And that's the risk is that there's a, a, 
a lot of people that take a lot of this innovation and work that's happening in open source for granted as a given and what it's going and the impact it's going to have without fully appreciating that it requires contributions from a broad number of people to make it innovative and make sure that it keeps evolving. And it requires a lot of people to chop wood and carry water. And yeah, it's not sexy. It's not fun. Yeah. It's a lot like work, but it's also deeply important. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's really hard to get people to do that for free. Right. And the, and the value is like, if you're, there's a commercial interest in it and like, you know, you have a business that's, that's growing and thriving around it. Like you're just very incented to keep it, keep it going well. So. Well, that's, and that's what largely happens, right? Right. You know, is like the people that are doing the most contributions are people that either are using it in their company or have a distro of it and have commercial value on top of it. But those are the people that are doing the work. It isn't someone that's, you know, you'll occasionally have like the hobbyist at home that really cares deeply about this particular technology. But at the end of the day, most of it's done by people that are using it commercially. Yeah. I think the you know, maybe that's part of it is there's this sort of, myth that you know there's just so much open source is created by people who are just doing it you know and all their free time and you know if we look at the poor it's a poor gauge but number of lines of code committed in open source like you know the vast majority of those lines are probably paid lines yes i would say if not nearly all like probably 99 percent yeah are, are are people that are paid to do it because honestly people should be paid for their work and we shouldn't expect the future of enterprise software to be written by people in their free time. Right. Is that, is that really what you want? People that are written, it's written in their free time and on nights and weekends. No, you want people to be compensated for the work that you're building your company on. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, it's becoming like such an important part of how, you know, companies are run is being formed like everything it's just becoming such a foundational part of what the future is going to look like so and what the future exists now i mean just think about linux linux isn't everything i don't care what you are it's like it's everywhere it's in your car it's in your cell phone it's 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 everywhere it's on your home phone you know it's it's and just think about the fact that our world rides on the top of open source and, and it's weird to think about it that way, but it's also super powerful to say, hey, I'm using this technology in one form or another. It doesn't matter what job I'm in. And I don't know enough people take that seriously to think, hey, I should be contributing back in some way. Yeah, I mean, that's another great point. Another reason to, to create open source is to continue contributing back, right? And that's, that's the, uh, we, we've all gotten, we stand here on the shoulders of giants, so might as well just keep giving back in order to help make the world better and better as we, as we grow. I know I need to figure out a way to do like Wikipedia does where sometimes you go to Wikipedia and it's like contribute now. I feel like we should put that on a lot of software. <laughs> you go to, and you go to do something and all of a sudden it's like contribute now. Yeah. You go to like, you know, uh, try to connect to a website and trying to get you to pay for TLS or something. Yeah. I think I feel like we should do that. Cause I don't, I don't know that enough people realize they need to give back and that means them too. Yeah. You know, I think that trying to convince uh, the average consumer they need to pay uh, tech people more might not be the best route. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'm, I don't know that I'm going to go on stage and advocate for more money, but I'd say instead of money, Hey, time, feedback, like anything, like yeah. it doesn't have to be money. And, and frankly, I don't know that money is, is helpful. I think more of, Hey, feedback, contributions. It can be lines of code. It could be feedback on docs. It could be feedback on the experience. Uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to contribute back to open source that aren't just, you know, simple code, code requests, you know? Yeah. I, I think maybe even, you know, shortened procurement time, right? So, Hey, if you, if you, this is an open source product, we, you go through this, the speed procurement path where we don't try to uh, negotiate you as hard. You get to get a little easier path to procurement. Oh, hallelujah. That would be a good, <laughs> like, that would probably, I think a lot of people would be excited about that one. Exactly. Abby, this has been amazing. You know, I, I really appreciate all your perspectives and on a wide variety of topics here. And, you know, I, I want to give you a chance if there's anything you, know, you want to say or have any, you know, ending thoughts around the future of enterprise software. I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective. Well, the future is coming. I think, a lot of people think that we're hit, we're in the heyday, it's peak cloud, it's peak everything. And it's not, it's early days. Like who knows how this is gonna all play out over the next five years. There's a lot of 
companies. We're going to have a lot of new players. We're going to have a lot of technology that you know goes away. We're going to have a lot uh, of innovation that happens over the next five years. And I think we're just getting started and there's a ton of opportunity, but there's also a ton of you know, formation and froth that's happening that creates a lot of confusion. And I think I would like as a call to action, let's figure out a way we can pull everyone together to talk about this in ways in terms of adoption, like who uses it? How do they use it? Why do they use it? What does it solve for? And how do all of these pieces fit together? That's would be my call to action for this podcast. All right. Well, uh, maybe we'll all get together in LA or SF sometime and make that happen. We should, we should, like, is there a way we can do that? Like create this like massive offsite of people? Yeah, it sounds fun. Or Hawaii, that's another good place for the offsites. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I feel like there, there's a ton of opportunity to have a bigger conversation around where things are going and the role technology plays. And I think there's, I think that's a conversation that's worth having that I don't know is happening outside of small little pockets of people. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.